0: In this episode, I call for more restrictions on those worshipping orders of theists. See whether the power of shadowing is worth investing time in and give you all a freebie. Welcome to the Mithras Matters Podcast, Season 1, Episode 39, Dedicated Theists and Warring Vampires. Hello and welcome to Mithras Matters, a podcast dedicated to the Mithras rule set and all its supplements. As always, I am your host Inwills and welcome to August. Now, I always consider that August is the month when everyone is off work and has more time for gaming in general. I must say this is because I was once a primary school teacher and today, as in the day I'm writing this script, which is the 21st or 22nd of July, it is here in the UK, the last day of school for many children. Myself, I'm currently on academic leave, so have a few days, well, weeks, when I'm able to make content for my social media accounts, including this podcast, and dedicate some of my time for my campaigns. I guess some of you might even be listening to this either already on holiday or actually basking on the beach in some tropical clime. I might be the only one who feels this, but as a GM, I actually enjoy spending time within my campaign world. It's pure escapism, creating and developing the world while the real world continues around me. It is probably because I'm in control of my own campaign world. And yeah, within that world, I dictate what happens. So as I mentioned, as a GM, I think August is probably the time when I make a start on those elements of the campaign that I've always wanted to work on, but I've never had the time. So what would be some good tasks for us all to be getting on with? while we have some time away from work. Well, definitely developing those NPCs that we quickly just jotted down their name during the playing session. I was going to say only if they're going to be an integral part of your campaign, but we all know that players have a habit of remembering these NPCs, even if we don't. I'm working on a Gibbering GM video at the moment about NPCs, so do look out for that being published. Another thing that you could be working on is developing historical timelines, sites or individuals. Looking back through the history of our campaign worlds and identifying main events and how these impacted on the world can provide real depth for our storytelling. This can also be a great source for new adventure material. so make sure you have a document open or pen and paper ready to jot down any ideas that spring into your minds. And talking about new adventure material, this is a perfect opportunity to invest some time with new plot lines. If your brain is like mine, that then, as soon as the turmoil of everyday work is reduced, the creative side of my brain springs into life. But remember to recall the somewhere in some form. I have learnt from experience that no matter how great an idea is. If you forget it, unless it's written down, it will be gone forever. And a final task that you could get involved with is creating new elements within your campaign. For example, monsters and spells or reading and implementing new rules. I have quite a few that I need to brush up on and to create easily accessible tables for I'm always forgetting the parrying and damage rule. And I have so many rules I have to get to grips with, with M space, for example, Q tech and hacking. Definitely a lot to do there. And just while I'm saying what I will be up to, I also need to sort out some religious orders of the Church of Amriel, which we'll be looking at in a while, some histories of the city of Lindo. And with a new player joining our campaign, the details of the Thieves Guild run by the infamous Sniffer needs to be developed and probably a new brotherhood for Rohan, the new character. Although we might have some time off work, it really provides us with some time to dedicate to our campaign worlds. So if you have any summer tasks that you would like to invest time in that I haven't mentioned here, then do let us all know in the Tupper Talk forums or on the Discord. Mm-hmm. So later on I want to talk about vampires and to give you a freebie, but first up I'm going to have a complaint about theists and suggest that we place further restrictions on them. Okay, before I get into trouble, I really do like the ideas of clerics and theists in a game. I see them as classes that can combine both magic and combat, as well as support and heal the group. This supporting reflects the role I like to play in MMOs, such as Elder Scrolls Online and Final Fantasy XIV. For me, being the healer is the best. Also, throughout this segment, I might refer to the use of the term God. This is used with a lowercase g. And if I do, then please recognize that this I use this term to refer to male or female or non-binary divine beings. If I remember, I'll use the more non-gender specific term of deity. Okay, so... Interestingly enough, at this point that I've thus thought about, are all deities non-gender specific in any case? This would help us to eliminate stereotypes. For example, why should the deity of love be female and the deity of war be male? Perhaps I've got some personal thinking to be done there. Despite liking them a lot, I do think as GMs we need to be very strict with these theists. Otherwise, they will appear to be getting a lot for nothing. I'm not changing anything from the core rulebook during this segment. Just reminding players and GMs where their theist power comes from and how precious this is. I think theists are probably the class that the GM can influence the most. And I want to share how we address some of these restrictions in our own campaign as a starting point for your ideas. I think it's important that we ensure that theists are constantly worthy of their deity's blessing. So let's deal with these theists as the same way as we did the um, animists. But instead of talking about spirits that they are aligned with or opposed to, let's have a look at the theists, gods or divine beings. And by the way, if you want to check out some animist talk, then do go and check out episode 34. OK, then. So let's think about these theists and their divine beings. And this, I think, is where the GM has to do the most work. Now, there are some starting points in the core rule book on page 112 and 113. So you can use these as a starting point. But there's also something quite Exciting and precious to develop your own ideas of the religions within your campaign worlds. So before creating your divine beings for your world, it is not just a matter of writing down their names and what they're gods of. It is essential that you build a philosophy, and ethos of your gods. What do they support? What do they oppose? Which gods are they allied with and which are they enemies of? And then how this is manifested by their theists, their worshippers. What must these theists do to ensure that their god will still grant them their power? This is so important for theists. I often think that you should be able to recognise clerics of a divine being by the way they dress, their actions and their beliefs. Some people might say that this is um, stereotyping theists of a certain deity and that they are there replicating their gods. But I think that is what theists should be doing. They should be replicating their God's desires and wants, and they should be instantly recognizable as whose um, faith and orders they are following. If they are anything else and start to veer from the alignment or the path of their divine being, then there is the risk that the god might desert them and then all their miracles will be gone. This also makes for an interesting storyline as well, with either the party needing to track down and convince a rogue cleric of their god's requirements, or even a player character moving from one divine being to another as their character's beliefs and philosophies change, either with themselves or they start to oppose those philosophies of their current divine being. We are currently working on some roles within the theist of Amriel, After Bartleby did so well with his defending parrying, we have created the role of defenders. These theists protect the rest of the order in time of trouble or attack. Their role is almost that of ultimate sacrifice. Armed with their staffs, their job is to buy time and to delay the attackers. They do this by parrying attacks for as long as they can. This protection role is also required to be followed within the campaign adventurers. Protect the innocent at all costs. Staffs for parrying, aegis and shields are the main spells and weapons of this role. And of course, the white robes of Amriel, the goddess of the moon. Another reason for developing the deity and its order first is the access to spells. With no class levels, the spell of the theist are only accessible via their progression within the ranks of their order. Many might want to sit down as one of your holiday tasks and create these fully. But I suggest another approach, flexibility and co-creation. Although the GM is ultimately has that responsibility for the campaign world, it is not their world. It belongs to all involved. Using this approach, I talk regularly with the players to see what they think and what they want. I trust them that they're not going to suggest ridiculous ideas, for example, that lay members should have access to a resurrection spell. They are a great source of knowledge and ideas, and we tend to co-create aspects of the orders and then try them out. In, in, I am of the opinion that it is if something is not working, then we change it, even if this means changing an established aspect of the game. I'm not one to enforce elements of the campaign because I think it was, for example, the right idea at the time. Once we have established the outlook of the theist, as well as the possible armor and weapons and spells then they will use, we need to know how they are going to dedicate themselves to their divine being and how they will ma- maintain this. So the next thing that is good to look at is how does the deity reward the theist? And this, for me, is where devotion pools come in. Now, I have to say at this point that I feel this is an element of any campaign that really needs the most work with respect to theists. Essentially, the theists transfer magic points into their devotion pool and then use these to cast miracles the amount of points the theists can add to their devotion pools is linked to their levels in the church another reason why we need to ensure that these religions are fully padded out these miracles are powerful To start off with, the magnitude and intensity are one tenth of their devotion skills. So with theists naturally increasing their devotion skills above 90 percent, these spells are very difficult to dispel and have very powerful effects. At this point, as a side note if you're not sure about intensity and magnitude of spells i've created a short rules video about these which i'll link in the show notes and you can find on my youtube channel so as well as the restrictions of armor and the spells due to their religion the actual transfer of magic points to their devotion pool is where there is a huge restriction that is needs to be put into play the core rule book states that this process requires the theist to be present at a shrine temple or holy place this process could be through simple play praying or might re- require some art sacrifices now within our campaign, you might be aware that Baltoby, our Theist, worships Amriel, the goddess of the full moon. Now, to maintain his connection with the goddess, I said that the transmission of points, the magic points from his magic points into his to, to his devotion pool, has to take place during a full moon. This initially seemed like a really good idea, although I've made a really Bad mistake here, since I currently don't have a system to track the phases of the moon and how much Barterby can transfer to his devotion pool through the, say, for example, the other phases of the moon, if he can do this at all. And I really haven't put any thought into where this can happen. Where, can he do this in the middle of the wilderness or not? I know that Barterby player... Um, Mr. Pickles often volunteers for the the midnight guard spot so he's probably more um, on this on the ball with this than I am so there really needs to be this place this requirement for the transference into the magic uh, into their devotion pool and this should be implementing a very important restriction on the theist. When traveling across the land or wilderness, for example, the theist might need to be very careful with their devotion pool, since once it's used up, they might not be performing any miracles until they can get back to their church or where they need to Um, have the deity see them so they can transfer more power into their devotion pool. This is a time when you need to have a good chat with your players to see what can be developed. We want it to provide some restrictions, but not be completely devastating for them and when they can cast miracles being devoted to a deity requires a lot of hard work and commitment. And we need to remember that the power of the miracles comes straight from their deity alone. Finally, just as a side point, within our campaign, we call folk magic prayers for the theists. This is still a separate skill, folk magic, but they form the basic of the, the or the basis of the spells used by the theist, we encourage the players to add their own slant on these, naming them differently and investing time on how they manifest themselves when cast. So theists are great and owe their greatness and power to the deity they worship. Do you think I've been too lenient with Bartobi in our campaign world? Do you impose more restrictions on your own theists either as a player or as a GM? It would be great to have a round table of theist specialists, although they would probably be knights anyway, of either players or GMs to discuss aspects of the class. so if you're interested in joining them, then do get in touch, and do spend some time to ensure that your own theists are worthy of their blessings and miracles of their deities. Remember, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, then why not just drop me an email or message and let me know what you would like to cover or chat about. I'm always looking for reviews or interviews with people. So if you're interested, you can email me at inworlds at gmail.com or send me a message on the various forums I frequent. Okay, from one extreme to another, it's time to look at the vampires. I really have to confess that I have a morbid curiosity about about vampires. I really enjoyed the Blade and the Underworld films and even have a vampire of my own living in the city of Lindo within our campaign. You can probably guess who that is. As you can imagine, I have a keen interest about any system that has the possibility of playing a vampire in it. And that is why I'm always mentioning After the Vampire Wars in this podcast. So far, my request for players or GMs in this setting has been met with nothing. Let's pause here for for me to have a little sob. So John Sneed, Sned, where are you? If you are out there, I am hoping you or anyone else who plays or DMs the game can come and have a chat with me about this setting. I am so excited about it. So as a group, we haven't started a campaign within this rule setting yet, although it's on my summer vacation list to read more about it and to start to think of a campaign idea for it. But in order to tempt you, um, I wanted to give you a bit of background from what I've read about the setting. So, After the Vampire Wars is an urban fantasy setting set in the current modern-day world. Well, actually, probably a few years ago, say in 2017. The creatures of myth and legends have been living alongside us for some time, although we have not seen or remembered seeing them due to the effects of something that is called shadowing. There is a whole chapter dedicated to this in the rule book, so I'm not going to even try to attempt to summarise it here. After the war, a dispute which was between the supernatural beings and the humans, the effectiveness of this shadowing has been reduced and everyone lives together in perfect Well, okay, if only it was as simple as that. There are still disputes and people accept the existence of supernatural beings to various degrees. With there also being goblins and fae inhabiting a parallel, the parallel other world and being able to travel between the two. This sets the stage for a wealth of campaign ideas, from missing people to supernational, supernatural leaders, political and corporate intrigue, street gang- gangs, raging werewolves and hidden plots to take over the cities or to bring down governments the character generation system allows players to start off with a number of supernatural points depending how magically rich you want the campaign world to be these points allow the players to buy supernatural powers or become supernatural beings being a seer Humans who can possess some impressive psychic and mental abilities actually cost zero supernatural points, while elder vampires with all their associated power cost 10 supernatural points. This system allows the GM to establish the level of supernatural activity within their campaign, as well as limiting what the players can become at the start. Of course, once the campaign has started and is progressing, then the limits are completely changed. For me, this setting has everything we have the tech level of our current world but with supernatural abilities and creatures added i can see me playing a character that yearns to be a vampire who will possibly do anything in order to achieve this aim i'm probably a godsend to any game master running this this rule setting I've always enjoyed the combination of magic and tech. And with this the system based in with the existing Mithras rules, it should be easy for players who are used to Mithras to adapt to the system for the odd game or two or possibly a full campaign. If you do venture into the world of otherworld beings and vampires, then do let me know. Again, it would be great to get a group of elder vampire, I mean people, together to discuss aspects of the setting and the associated rules. You can probably see hopefully where we can take this podcast in the future. Until then, I will dream about becoming a vampire in After the Vampire Wars. Uh, Wait, that might be actually up for misinterpretation. So, So let's move on. If you're out there and you play After the Vampire Wars, then please do get in touch. Finally, for this episode, I want to give you a freebie. Yes, you heard that correctly, a free gift. I know you weren't expecting that, but hey, consider it a gift for all the support you have given the podcast. So this is some details about a creature that will be appearing in my role playing online shop where I upload digital versions of encounters for people to enjoy. If you're interested in checking them out, then you can find the link in the show notes. So I would like to share with you the, the monster, the being of the dream stalker. This is a new monster or entity for the Mithras rule set, but can easily be adapted to other systems or settings. I actually used this creature in an adventure called Mists and Shadows. And you can find the whole adventure on my YouTube channel if you want to see how the party approached The Dream Stalker and how they actually managed to eradicate it from Lindo. So the the concept of the Dream Stalker is that it's an entity that lives off people's emotional dreams. Although people are able to have both positive and negative dreams, the Dream Stalker is responsible for all the nightmares that people have. The emotions associated with these nightmares are the most powerful emotions and can provide the dream stalker with enough energy to live off for a significant number of years. They live underground but can extend their mind through any substance to influence the dreams of people. They are very rare and few people have actually managed to locate a dream stalker, let alone destroy one. They have the ability to make their victims fear sleep and even drive them to madness and possible death. When manifesting themselves, they appear as a huge blob or jelly like piece of matter with tendrils that reach out in all directions, constantly investigating and exploring. If approached, the dream stalker evokes dreams on its opponents with the victims needing to resist a willpower well in order to prevent them falling into a dreamlike state failing does plunge them into a carry into a situation a nightmare of their greatest fears and will probably end up with them instantly dying in some dreadful situation and of course we all know if you die in your dreams that is the end you can make the Dream Stalker as big or as small as you want. When I used it, I apologize for using it in a it's only a dream scenario when the players did not realize they were dreaming and they met up with Kristoff and were defeated by him one by one. As they fell... Not knowing that they were in a dream, I was able to message the players via Discord outside of the game with the phrase, With a scream you wake up your body and bed drenched with sweat and your heart beating and adrenaline cursing through your body. Of course, they said nothing as I killed the rest of the characters one by one. With Bartleby, I did the thing that he feared the most. His goddess deserted him and he was left powerless. Which brings us a complete circle back to where we started about talking about theists. Do enjoy using this dream stalker if you wish. I know that the players and myself both enjoyed the experience with them becoming aware how blasé they were becoming with their prowess in combat. So, yeah, use it as a freebie from me and do check out my RPG online store for the other digital versions of Encounters. And that's it. Another episode of Mythras Matters completed. Don't forget you can check out all my content by following my YouTube channel and the campaign areas on World Anvil. Links in the show note. I really do appreciate your support, but also check out the Tapper Talk forums and Discord where there are some great people sharing their ideas within discussions. So until next time, have a great month of gaming and creating. And I will chat to you all again in September for episode 40. That must be a significant milestone. Until then, I hope all your posed roles succeed and provide you with a well-deserved special. Thanks for listening, everyone. See ya! Bye. content of this podcast is covered by the creative commons attribution 3.0 license so please give appropriate credit if you are sharing or copying any part of this podcast thank you